Welcome to the Customer Experience Management Podcast, hosted by Anders Gustafsson and Carlos Velasco. In this episode, Carlos interviews Dr. Charles Spence about sense hacking. Welcome everyone to the Customer Experience Management uh, Podcast. Uh, it is a pleasure to welcome you today. I'm here with Professor Charles Spence. Uh, he is not only a fantastic researcher, but also a mentor and a consult consultant. He has worked with uh, multiple companies all around the world uh, in topics that he will tell us about more, but uh, that deal with the, the human senses. He recently published uh, a research article, uh, um, a book called Sense Hacking, How to Use the Power of Your Senses for Happier, Healthier Living. And that book uh, has been uh, well received uh, in, in the public. And I'm hoping that Charles tells us today a little bit more about sense hacking. But let us uh, give Charles the, the word to introduce himself. So Charles, uh, tell us about yourself and your work, please. Yeah, so uh, welcome, everyone. I am an experimental psychologist by background, uh, working out of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory uh, at Oxford University. Um, so actually based in experimental psychology rather than in the business school. Uh, and yet the lab, um, which is interested in the senses and how to apply the latest insights from psychological and brain science to the real world. Uh, that lab, the Crossmodal Research Lab, has been funded mostly by industry over the last uh, quarter of a century since I uh, started up back in 1997. Um, and so uh, we work on all the human senses, how people see and hear, touch, taste, smell, um, and I suppose try and uh, very often sort of work with companies to think about how the senses interact for their products, experiences, services, and so on, uh, and to think about how some of those latest insights from the uh, psychological or brain sciences, what some might call consumer neuroscience, um, how those insights can be applied to uh, help uh, improve uh, the design of products, places, packaging, people, experiences, services, you name it. Um, I guess in, in truth, most of the research to date has been uh, in the home and personal care categories, in food and beverage, and in extra experiential marketing. But we have done a lot with technology, with uh, a little bit of drugs companies, a lot with um, transportation, uh, and recently a bit with sort of space travel as well. That's super interesting. Uh, Charles, in previous uh, podcasts, uh, first, thank you for, for your introduction, but in previous podcasts, we have been talking about what customer experiences are. Uh, I would like to ask you a similar question, like what are customer experiences, but perhaps more specifically to what you do, what, what are the role of the senses in experiences? And I know that this is a broad question, but what could you say about that? Um, so I guess I'd say that, uh, we experience, whether it's a uh, customer experience or just experience more generally, uh, is something that is made up of or, or, or affected by what's going on in all of our senses. So I'd very much think of you know, experience as a multi-sensory phenomenon. Um, that said, uh, it's probably not the way it necessarily feels to the consumer or uh, to anyone in particular. We, we tend to be visually dominant creatures um, or customers as well. And hence, um, we tend to very often sort of think visually, more of our brains given over to 
our visual experience than it is to our olfactory experience, say how we smell or, or, or our tactile experience. Um, and yet through a sort of experimentation, um, this is maybe where the experimental psychology comes in, it's possible to demonstrate that despite what people tell you, the customer, that you know, it's, it's all about what I see, the visual experience, uh, the other senses are having a role, um, whether we realize it or not. And I think very often we don't realize it. Um, and that's really in part, I guess, sort of the, the, the backdrop to the sense hacking book you mentioned that just came out earlier this year in 2021. Um, thinking about uh, that's more, you know, about the, about the person at home, and their everyday experience, sometimes as consumers when they go shopping, but also in their home and with their family and their time and time again, just showing, well, just how important ambient smell is to your experience of retail, of sleep, of the gym, of your home. And yet how little that plays out in our sort of conscious awareness, um, and in part because I guess things that are sort of constant in our environments, like the smell of our own homes, we never realise. Soon be the smell of any particular, you know, uh, uh, customer encounter in a store. Um, there'll be a distinctive scent there, but the staff may not realise the scent of their hotel or their store. Uh, yeah customers will perhaps notice it better um, and how is that affecting them both the customer and uh, the employers um, and how to for me I guess the fun thing is then how to think how to demonstrate to convince people about the importance of say these neglected senses the non-visual senses be it sound or scent or feel um, uh, to, 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 to experience and the choices uh, um, of the customer and I guess ultimately maybe I think you know, talking about customer experiences makes it sound like it's in the moment. Um, but I'm maybe more interested in uh, sort of your, your memory for experiences because the experience itself only happens for a moment. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's your memory of the meal. It's your memory of the store that will determine whether you go back to a particular restaurant again. Um, and while it's common to think, you know, that our memory of the experience is just like a weaker version of the of the real thing. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, you know, a century of psychology research shows that our memory plays lots of tricks on us. Um, and those tricks are going to color the way, uh, you know, that we remember our experiences. So that's kind of, it's that sort of a you know, stiction in a way, I guess that's sort of the, the business term for it, management term, um, about how to engineer great memories of experiences through uh, all of the senses, even the ones that your customer uh, doesn't realize that they're using or that is affecting them. It's something that is quite interesting from your uh, research, Charles, in general, like uh, for those of you who don't know Charles, he has published over a thousand uh, research papers on the census, making him one of the best contributors to uh, how the census work uh, uh, research related to the topic. But what, one of the things um, that you were mentioning uh, that or that you were mentioning kind of like that I read from what you say and that I also read from your papers is most of our experiences uh, or any experience that we think is is actually multi-sensory in nature right like they include most if not all our senses at the same time however we are not always aware of what is happening in them right so some of the work that you have done is basically trying to understand how sometimes we might not be aware of a specific sense, but then yet it makes a massive difference. And something that comes to mind here is the, the research that you have done on the, the role of sounds in, for example, flavor experiences or flavor perception in general. Uh, typically, people wouldn't think that sound is like uh, the most kind of like important sense when it comes to uh, eating and drinking, yet it is a powerful uh, 
experience means. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about that, Charles? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a lot of the research that we do uh, in the lab in Oxford, the Cross-Mosital Research Lab, but also then with um, commercial companies is to kind of, on the one hand, to measure, to assess just how much of an impact each of the senses are having uh, on the experience. Um, be it on a consumer journey, be it on a you know, product experience or a service encounter. Um, think about the relative ports of the senses to think about whether they're sort of telling a congruent message or not. Um, and as well, also, I think to increasingly, I'm thinking how to um, get those companies who are visually dominant, just like the rest of us, how to get them to think differently and to believe in the thing that they're not aware is affecting them and their customers. Wow. So to put that in, in, sort of co in context, and I've done a lot of work in store retail over the years, advising some of the world's biggest uh, chains. And um, the, I, I can see as a psychologist, as a scientist, all the research uh, demonstrating the impact of scent on uh, willingness to pay, on lingering time, uh, same thing for sound, music, I mean, be it in a retail environment, be it in a restaurant, uh, there's always a sound, there's always a smell, or there isn't, and if there isn't a sound, that tells you something. So there's already always kind of a, a context in each of the senses. Uh, sometimes it's unpleasant, it becomes noise in hearing or a bad smell. Um, other times it's sort of deliberately introduced uh, music and or scent, and then these sensory environmental cues might be congruent or not. Um, and I think for too long, while, while, while the sensory marketeers have over the last decade or two uh, started to catch up in uh, thinking about you know, multi-sensory touch points, uh, engaging your, their consumers to all of the senses, most of those sensory marketing books tend still to be divided into a sense-by-sense -sense approach, a chapter on touch yeah. and your consumer, a chapter on, on, on taste and hearing. That's a start, but it often ends up, if you take a sense-by-sense -sense approach, I fear that you don't think about how the senses interact. And that's where all of our sort of passion and focus is. It's that missing chapter about how the senses interact, as they always do in our brains, in our experience. Um, and as such, you know, I, on the one hand, I see the cases where people have introduced scent and music into, say, a shopping centre. Uh, and maybe the music, if you, if you get the music right, it increased sales, average sales. Uh, if you introduce the scent, didn't seem to do anything in this particular study, but put the two things together, the scent and the sound, and sales declined. <laughs> uh, and again and again, that sort of pattern happens. And I think it may be because if, as a consumer, if one of your senses is telling you one thing, this is an alerting and arousing uh, environment, but another sense is saying this is you know, traditional, nostalgic, uh, relaxing, then how is a consumer to resolve that incongruency? And, and that's one of the big problems we face. But at the same time, also, that despite me seeing all this research about the potential beneficial effects of designing for design experiences for all of the uh, consumers senses. And when I share that research and the results with, you know, with, with those say in the retail industry, they'll sort of nod their heads politely uh, very often um, yeah. uh, and then go away and do nothing. Um, and it's almost as if uh, my sense now is that because we are such visual creatures, you know, people are afraid to engage with these other senses sometimes. And hence, you know, if they were to introduce store scent and it were to flop, then they'd probably lose their jobs. So why not just, you know, change the lighting, the visuals, just like every previous manager has done 
Um, it'll cost you maybe, you know, uh, a lot of money to do so, but at least you can't be criticised for doing something innovative and, and out of the box, as it were. Um, so for me now, that the, the you know, real part of the interest is, is then is how to drive change in those I speak to. Uh, clearly, it's not by showing them graphs or statistics that you know, will kind of impress perhaps the scientist, but is it actually through you know designing experiences so that those who come kind of go wow. Yeah, I get it now, and and it's through their own experience that they are motivated to do something differently. So basically, um, you design experiences for like you know like pe people in specific businesses, so that they go through the experience themselves and then get aware of how these senses yeah. basically. Um, yeah. um, and that can be you know in in the relevant context itself, um, but other times it has been just through you know, we've done a lot of experiential multisensory events with with brands and you know, sort of food and drink and fragrance and music can be good um, topics because they're entertaining, but you can sort of illustrate the same point. So, you know, I've been sort of most impressed by things like the Singleton Sensorium that we did in 2013, but we did, in fact, in 2013 yeah. um, <laughs> mm -hmm. in London, you know, where, where, where some of the, so it's a kind of a 15 minute experience in three rooms with one glass of whiskey and different colors and smells and sounds, a very different multi-sensory experience in each of those three rooms. And people rating their taste of the whiskey, the, the nose, and the aftertaste. Uh, and people coming out of that 15-minute experience, seeing their scorecard, seeing how what different things they said about you know, the whiskey. Uh, you know, and they know the whiskey hasn't left their hands, but they can see what their scorecard says, and they say very different things. Um, and with that, then I saw amazing how many people I saw leave that experience who were in hospitality and say we're going to do things differently, and did do things differently. As a result, wow. they tried to replicate something of the the Woody Room, which is the the favoured room for many people and after that you know the same thing again 2014 with the um campo viejo color lab where you know with, with the um different colors sweet and sour music three thousand people tasting wine and again people coming out of that going oh my god i don't believe you know i thought color had some effect on me i thought sound had some effect but i didn't as soon as the music changed the taste changed um and once you've had that experience one version or another then i think people are more motivated to 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 uh, see the analogy with whatever sector they are in, and and think how can we, you know, um, uh, do differently, do better, and uh, and sort of use these sometimes subtle, often unattended uh, sensory cues that sort of pass below, you know, our awareness much of the time, uh, how they can optimize them to to deliver the outcomes that what they're looking for, whether that's you know increased spend or longer lingering or less lingering or or, or, or higher return um, uh, visits um, uh, and probably I think well there is a lot of research out there on the design of these multi-sensory customer experiences uh, my sort of advice is always well that research was probably done in a different country at a different time with a different demographic and a different kind of environment mm -hmm. store environment hence it's probably you know worth uh, you always trying to experiment yourselves and just see what works you know, from what's been out there and what I've said, uh, hopefully you're convinced now, or if you've had one of the experiences, you're convinced of the power of the senses to affect us all. Now, you know, just take that inside and, and sort of play and experiment yourselves by you is... changing the music in your restaurant, you know, uh, up tempo one week, low tempo the next, and see what happens. Play French music or French, play German music and see if you sell more French wine when the, the uh, accordion music's playing or, or not. 
That is a fantastic comment also because in the context of customer experience management, I guess one of the things that we, we also say is, you know, experimenting is good, you know, and learning from these experiments, right? Because in the end, from your own company's view or from your own context, you can kind of like gather all these insights as you experiment and start seeing basically what works in terms of that sensory design that you that you have, right? Uh, um, I think that's uh, yeah, what I always advise. Uh, of course, it's, I, mean, I think we're all probably sick of those, you know, how's the experience questionnaires that yeah. we get whenever we do anything. Even when I download an academic paper now, I go, how's the experience kind of, I uh, can't get away from it, we're all sick of it. So that's probably not the way to go. So some more sort of subtle experimenting where maybe you just you look at you know, till receipts uh, as a function of the, the music or, or, or the scent you add or, or don't, um, but done sort of in a way that, you know, we do a lot of work in, in restaurants and with chefs and there, uh, your diners may be happy to be part of an experiment. Mm -hmm. Whereas in, in many other uh, kind of, um, customer situations or service settings, probably people don't want to feel like they're an experiment. They want things changing too much. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, a, a I think, a, a, a interesting, challenging um, sort of ground there to figure out how to do this, how to experiment. How to do it right, thing. basically. Yeah. yeah, without without your customer saying, well, I don't know what you stand for anymore because you know, they always seem to change every time I come yeah. in. So I've kind of lost the identity. That makes sense. Charles, um, you mentioned something which is like these experiments, some of uh, uh, of which we have done together on mm -hmm. how uh, sound cues influence, uh, for example, your perception of a glass of wine or whiskey. Mm -hmm. And this is something that you have been working on, which is uh, uh, being called, or you have called, among others, uh, sonic seasoning. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this seems to be like a, a topic that gets a lot of attention every time that I talk about it. Maybe uh, given that you work a lot on the topic, yeah. can you tell us what, what is it about and how can we That's right. use it? Um, so it is the name for the observation. Um, now often repeatedly found that the music we hear uh, can change the taste of food and drink um, uh, and do so in a sort of specific way, just like, you know, you might season a dish. So there is music that sounds sweet, that's sort of high pitch and tinkling. Piano or wind chime, I sort of always say, uh, if that's playing in the background uh, while you're tasting something that's bittersweet, like, I don't know, a sweetened cup of coffee or a, a dark piece of chocolate, then it will tend to accentuate the sweetness that's present in the food or drink. We've got bitter music, we've got sour music, uh, creamy, spicy. Uh, so we've got music for all sorts of tastes and flavors now. Uh, and we can use it either by taking music or just off the shelf um, or by especially composing music. And this is a lot of stuff we're doing with brands uh, you know, to, to make a piece of music that perfectly matches the taste of the whiskey, wine, chocolate, coffee you name it and how is the process um, about that uh, so is it like some something like you get i mean from from what we have done together like uh, that something that i see is that typically you would say okay like we have these i don't know sweetness or creaminess or crunchiness and then you kind of like create these uh, so-called synesthetic questions that you maybe talk with uh, audio designers or sonic branding mm -hmm. uh, practitioners mm -hmm. and stuff yeah. um so uh often we'll either in the past, we'll sort of do experiments in the lab, but with COVID, it's maybe more online, trying to pick up what are the things that people associate with a particular taste or flavor. Uh, and with that sort of library, almost like musical menu, then a brand may come and say, we've got this product or these products, and the, our, our, our blender or our master taster tells us that um, 
it's got, I don't know, roasted and green and sweet and floral notes, and they sort of come out at different points. Uh, and we'll sort of connect those two, uh, the tasting notes with our sort of musical menus that we've built up over a decade or more, um, and then sort of pass the results on to either a DJ, uh, um, audio producer, composer, who can then either select music that has those relevant attributes or um, come up with some new composition. We've worked with people like Stella Artois Beer and The Roots, uh, a famous North American pop group, and they created a new track based on our research to match the sweet and bitter notes in a, in a, a can or a bottle or a pint of Stella Artois Beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it's sort of a, a growing interest. Um, we're currently doing it with a couple of brands, and I, I think um, it, it sort of captures the imagination both because it sort of sounds like synesthesia on the one hand, but also I think it's the one thing that's you know, kind of permanently surprising to people when we did things like the sound of the sea changing, enhancing the experience of seafood, that was surprising 15 years ago, but now people say it's obvious what else was going to happen. Whereas the idea that music could season the taste of food um, is bizarre, it shouldn't work, but it does. And I, somebody just sent me a video from like a, a British TV show saying, you know, we've heard about sonic seasoning. Um, uh, before we air it, I just want to try it out amongst all the research team. And I got a video of them, you know, pulling funny faces and clearly their scorecards and go, wow, it's amazing, it, uh, it really worked. Um, and that's a response you get again and again, uh, which is great. Um, though at the same time, and I can see more and more brands um, getting into the space. And I think it's interesting both um, in the food and beverage, but really I see this as part of a, you know, many brands aren't really interested in the taste or smell of, don't work with the chemical senses in any way. Um, but I think you can take the same idea that any attribute that your brand or stands for uh, and do the same kind of experiments. So no matter what you know uh, you are about as a brand and, and you're the psychological means of, of determining you kind know, of the key attributes or meaning and that uh, and then of connecting those meanings to sound and from that then thinking about how to design as I know you're interested in sort of you know better brand names that connote the meaning of, of your product or service just by the sounds of the, of the, of the letters spoken or written, um, how you can design then audio jingles that are more effectively are more congruent in this almost synesthetic way. Um, and, and by then extending from just sonic seasoning for, 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 for taste and flavor experiences to, to, to the more general um, uh, attributes. Which is fantastic, actually. That's something that we have also done together and you have done extensively with many companies, which is asking questions such as, you know, what is the taste of a premium brand or what is the sound of a luxury brand, right? And in that mm-hmm. kind of like question space, you can uh, start determining sort of like the sensory identity, if you like, of, of mm-hmm. the, the sort of like attribute mm-hmm. that the brand wants to stand for. Yeah. yeah. And sort of sensory, I suppose. Um, uh, and as well, also then there's a more uh, uh, connotative meaning from, from semantic mm-hmm. differential stuff. But, um, uh, you know, about how you uh, strong, weak, active, passive, uh, or dominant, submissive, uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, forward, backward, uh, no, um, uh, Charles, I have a, a, a sort of like uh, in-between question, which is more, more a personal one, but how did you get interested in all these topics? Um, well, just, they're just interesting topics, so uh, why, why wouldn't you? <laughs> um, kind of, uh, but in a way, um, I've been lucky uh, or stubborn, uh, depending if you ask my head of department or or myself over, over the decades in not having to apply for traditional funding through um, mm-hmm. research councils, but instead been funded by um, industry. And that, that sort of allowed me to do is, is not 
have to have research plans five years ahead with Gantt charts about what we're going to do in 2026. Um, mm -hmm. But instead, just be more of the spur of the moment in terms of what's interesting. Uh, and especially, I think, uh, who comes through the door, who, who drops an email and says, um, you know, what you're doing is really interesting. I'm a typeface designer. I'm a perfume maker. I'm a composer. I'm a chocolatier. Uh, I send people into space. I don't know what it might be. Um, and with them, you know, with all these so many people in the, in, in the commercial sphere who, who uh, create or do something uh, and together there's always research and like with our mutual colleagues we say uh charles yeah. michel the chef you know when it when he came uh, to oxford he couldn't do psych well i'm not sure he still can't do psychology i think and it definitely could do statistics <laughs> but he uh -huh. could cook uh, and put him together with somebody who's interested who knows about the senses and can do statistics and suddenly you've got a whole new research area of you know the science of plating and, and, and gastro porn that you know you, you couldn't have done otherwise and when the typeface designers uh, sort of come through the doors. Uh, Sarah Hindman. Then again, I have no idea how to design a typeface or a font, but she's got a you know, PhD or should have a PhD in it. Uh, and together again, we can then think about designing typefaces that connote uh, tastes. We've done that in the Science Museum in London, or you know, designing the typeface for album covers. We did a paper out on that last year. Or then you know, for any product or brand, um, you know, what 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 typeface should you have? What would be appropriate? What you... make the right sort of qualities and uh, and then we're sort of in a way, it's, it sounds like it's very far from sonic seasoning, but in a way, it's all sort of the same stuff. And then yeah. in a way, and I'm just sort of fundamentally fascinating that, you know, our senses are so connected. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, and I guess I've worked, I started out working in, in um, warning signal design and mobile telephones in cars in the, in, the, in the European Space Agency. So sort of technology based sensory interactions 20 years ago. Uh, I've gone through uh, food and beverage companies now, more working with chefs and, and mixologists and uh, and more creative end. Um, and what I sort of see is that you know, innovation seems to happen faster uh, if you're working with a chef, say, because um, they're their own boss. And if they like the idea, they can put it on the menu tomorrow, next week, they can try this music or, or, or play things that way. Whereas working with big companies seems to take forever. And there's always a change of management and a new direction and a... Um, uh, and, and so, you know, even in a, when when I look back now, my former self doing the car research and the warning signal design, even if you've got the perfect result, it would still be ten or twenty years before that insight about how the brain connects the senses would appear in the car that you might pick up. Um, whereas, you know, the restaurants is much faster, and so I think that being able to to address questions much more rapidly um, mm -hmm. uh, with the creative spirit, you know, be it. I mean, a lot of our work now is at the sort of at the interface between sort of scientific measurement and the creative arts of you know uh, perfumery, com music composition, painting, um, uh, and at that interface then where the sort of science meets the art to to hopefully you know take the science and, cons and constrain the creativity, but in a, in a, in a useful direction uh, and to help you know sort of then I sort of see my role very often then sort of in inspiration to the creatives in various sectors and then kind of measuring their or assessing their solutions in order to feed back to whatever their corporate bosses and say yes this this is a good uh this is a good solution to the problem and this is why um and uh yeah, uh, sort of you know something that is a, a lot of uh, fun and just you know, if something's interesting and it's easy to study i guess that's the other thing yeah. I mean, there are lots of questions, you know, that are very important, uh, maybe very interesting too, but if it takes you 10 years to answer it, 
let somebody else do it is my thing. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, um, but you know, like I have to say that one of the things that I admire a lot about your research, and I think it's not only me, but many people, is this idea, idea that, you know, because you're at the center of sort of, of, sort of like a basic research and practice, so then you have like this con connection that, you know, you work with uh, people that are applying stuff, then you get super interesting questions that, that you study in the lab, that then you get insights to it, and then it's kind of like a feedback process. Yeah where questions and answers are, are being, you know, brought by both sides, right? Yeah. yeah. You, you connect. Um, and, and for me, you know, when I started in Oxford in 97, uh, the cross-modal lab, uh, there was a sense, you know, if, if you were an academic uh, working with companies funded by uh, companies, then you, you weren't really a scientist. That was just easy money and not, not very intellectually challenging. But um, you know, the, the landscape has changed very much, certainly in the UK over the last few years with impact and the importance of scientists, not just being in their white towers, but communicating and um, having an impact. Uh, and so this applied research definitely fits there. But then, uh, you know, again, time and again, I've sort of found that by, you say, taking lab findings, trying to apply them, then that's an insight for the applied, but then seeing how things happen in the real world gives you insights back for, mm. for the next laboratory experiment and back and forth. And, I've seen that both in the driving scenario where we looked at, you know, attention capture in the lab versus in, in a car with a warning signal. And again, I see it, we you know, working with the chefs that uh, we have ideas that we can pass on to them that lead to new dishes that, that they also have, you know, knowledge um, that we can feed back into basic research. And even, you know, when we first started working with the chef Heston Blumenthal, well, I was being funded by Unilever uh, to look at their sort of fruit teas. And while they looked great and smelled great, but tasted disappointing, then um, yeah, uh, uh, the chefs in the kitchen were, were learning from us, but also they had all this knowledge about how fruit acids change the impact of color and we could feed that right back uh, and do experiments that then could be the findings of which could be, you know, uh, feed back into the, into the design and the understanding why consumers were responding this or that way. And, um, and, and for me, I, realizing that again, um, many people aren't interested in food or can't get to these fancy restaurants where we do some of the experiments and yeah I sort of feel and that's really part of the aim of the sort of sense hacking book is to say you can innovate faster and better probably in the world of food and drink um, and show the influence of all the senses and in, in experience in memory of the experience and in anticipation of the experience um, but even if you're not selling or interested in food and drink you can put yourself in the place the plate of food or you can put your product in the place and I bet the same things will hold true that you can, you know, uh, trigger emotions and moods, uh, change behavior and choices and, and memory uh, of your product, um, just as you can uh, a place of food. Um, but you've got that sort of solution or got your ideas about what to do and what's important much more rapidly than if I'm trying to, you know, run a study in eight stores, four with scent, four without. Hmm. Um, it's going to take a long time, and you know, when we get out into you know hospital settings as well, or or uh, uh, the healthcare, suddenly it's you know it takes years to answer the same question. You could have answered, so, lucky you can answer it much more quickly. So yeah. the you know, implications, I think, from study, trying to figure out the situations where it's easy to study these phenomena, uh, but then see that they are they do have a, or try and convince people that they do have application, an impact, and inspiration, and impact for for whatever other domain you're. Um, thinking about and that's perhaps the, the, the joy and, and the luck of being in an academic institution rather than in industries that I sort of get to see 
you know, from the design of wine labels to car warning signals to space food to, to pharmaceuticals to coffee and perfume. Uh, and then you can sort of see maybe common themes or ideas that you can sort of translate from one um, commercial space to another. Um, and that probably, you know, uh, I find that I don't believe that um, maybe, you know, the, the science of naming whatever it is you have is probably best studied in the case of pharmaceuticals, the, the study of, you know, remembering brands and, and visual search is best studied in the case of wine labels, uh, the, the, the science of, um, you know, appealing to specific genders, maybe that's in the, in, in the car domain. And so it goes on and you can sort of maybe pick these sort of best, most advanced commercial areas um studying a certain problem and then think about okay if they do it there and why why can't we do that with coffee if they're doing that with cars why can't we do it with mobile devices and with almost any category oh this is this yeah. is uh, fascinating charles and i guess one of the key takeaways that i can take by now is experiment experiment as much as mm -hmm. you can because then you can get insights in real time and apply things as as you learn them yeah. so uh everyone maybe one of the things we say you know um don't necessarily believe what your subjects, yeah. your consumers tell you, because we all, none of us believe, you know, the, these things affect us. Um, but very clearly, the evidence says they do again and again and again, regardless mm -hmm. of, so even when your consumers are trying to be as honest and truthful as possible, none of us have got a very good you know, introspection about what's actually affecting us. That is, yeah, that is also a very, very nice uh, uh, insight because it is true. You know, sometimes we ask people, like, hey, do you like this product or this service? People might say yes, because they like you or because they kind of like are in a setting that promote, like kind of like supports it. But uh, it might be a case that is just not, uh, and is the same, I guess, with the census. So Charles, we're getting uh, to the end of the, the, the interview now, but I still have a few questions. So I want to say for everyone, uh, Please remember, Charles Spence just published this book, Sense Hacking, How to Use the Power of Your Senses for Happier, Healthier uh, Living. And in this book, he talks in much, much more detail about all the topics that we have been covering today. But uh, my last, I guess, three questions, Charles, uh, I'm going to group the first two in one group and then the, the last one okay. after. Uh, what is sense hacking and how can people use it? Um, so... Sense hacking is um, quite literally, in this case, sort of you know, hacking your senses, um, and it is you know, uh, trying to raise awareness of the impact of all of our senses, not just our dominant visual one, for our health, for our well-being, for our creativity, for our performance, um, by uh, sort of in a way, sort of taking some of the insights that I've seen working in the commercial space uh, around, you know, say, store design. But applying it to people in their own home and saying, you know, the science of the senses is something we can all use. Um, it may have been discovered in a, in a commercial setting, but uh, if you realize, you know, just how big an impact, you know, uh, scent can have on your mood, on your well being, um, then why aren't we using it more at home? Uh, thinking about uh, color and sound and, and thinking about sort of um, the congruency of the senses, but also I think in, in that sort of highlighting that, that there is probably a, uh, many of us are sort of suffering, especially in the COVID times, but generally from a number of sort of sensory imbalances, I think, such as be it light hunger or touch hunger, um, uh, be it sick building syndrome, uh, be it nature deficit disorder, um, <laughs> a huge amount of, uh, of loneliness and a lack of social interaction. 
Uh, and these many of these problems are sort of a sensory basis. You know, the touch hunger, people are not being touched as much as we know they should be, and it clearly has a beneficial effect on them. So in here, it's all about, you know, how you might uh, get the nice soft and uh, uh, comfy pillows, but also think about the massage and not treat that as a luxury, yeah. but as a necessity for your well-being. But then also think about how to scent your home differently and how to you know, sort of hack your senses through your nose if you want to relax, if you want to sleep better, but also if you want to perform better, run faster, uh, exercise for longer. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's um, hopefully an empowering book about the senses. Um, it does get into kind of retail at one, one stage, um, but I think it is just bringing together all this evidence uh, and trying to say we need to rebalance our senses, um, avoid the sensory overload, uh, and recognize just how powerfully the senses can affect us, especially when they're you know, combined in a, a congruent manner. That is excellent. Uh, and yeah, the, the topic of sense hacking uh, can be used in so many different contexts. What, what, I'm, what, I'm, uh, what I've been getting from your book and also from uh, our, our different interactions. Uh, Charles, I have one final question. And this one is kind of like linking two of the topics, what you just said, sense hacking, about, you know, hacking the senses. Mm -hmm. And also this idea that people are not always aware of how the senses influence them, right? So in a way you might, uh, or a question that I frequently get from companies and from students and from different kind of like uh, people is, what are the ethic ethical implications of these um, mm -hmm. kind of like uh, initiatives, like sense hacking? Yeah. yeah. Um so it's a question I get a lot too. Uh, um, on the one hand, it's, uh, uh, I'm very happy to hear it. Um, but it's a good question, but I'm happy to hear it in the sense that it implies, okay, now people are taking this seriously. Now they sort of believe the science in a way that 10, 15 years ago, if you went to a company and said, you know, did you realize if you change the color of your yogurt pot, you could reduce the sugar in your product? They say, don't be stupid. There's no way that you know, the color of the <laughs> yogurt pot will change the taste of the yogurt. Um, so they sort of laughed you off years ago, and, and now I think there's a growing awareness. No, this is real. Um, it does impact us. A lot of the scientific insights have come out from commercial space, commercial funded research, and hence perhaps the ethical question. Um, I, 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 I think, you know, and I want to say in the, in the end, the sort of science of the senses is a sort of value neutral, just knowledge, and it can be used for good or evil potentially. Um, Companies have been using it for a long time. We always hear about McDonald's and you know freshly baked bread smell um, and such like, and, and you know, colours that will get you into McDonald's and out within ten minutes. And, um, and you think, well, do I want to be manipulated so in this way? Is one question that crops up. And is that ethical to do so? Um, and I guess part of it is, uh, I mean, there's maybe an interesting sort of distinction here or, or between sort of. Sort of sensory nudging um, uh, and sensory marketing you might call it mm -hmm. both are trying to change people's behavior um, and the nudging is meant to be you know uh, feel good and we're doing it for everyone's benefit and there's no evil intent behind and it's your choice no one's forcing you to do anything we're just nudging you to um, and the sensory marketing um, I guess it's all different it's also trying to change people's behavior mm -hmm. um, but maybe it's sort of you know based more on sort of you know, sensory cues and pushes and rather than informational manner anchoring it in the nudging case um but probably you know the, the more we know about how our senses affect us the better we are able we are to resist the laws of sensory marketing mm -hmm. and the um i guess the sort of the sensory marketeers would often say 
well, you know, there isn't a scent that can make you spend more, mm. uh, but there are scents that may create a more amenable environment that may immerse you more in whatever the, the experience is. And if you're more immersed in that sort of experience, then you're going to enjoy it more, then you're going to stay, linger for longer, and then, well, you might spend some more. So in the end, it's you know, kind of an indirect route. It's, it's through, it's through managing actually experience very... rather than, than, than directly triggering the um, buying button. Which is brain, a, is. <laughs> a very good point because sometimes companies and, you know, like uh, even some of my students, you know, they come to me and they say like, so you can basically select the right smell to trigger specifically here. And what I said, tell them is like, if, if that was the case, then there would be no research whatsoever. You know, like companies would know exactly what to do, but that's basically mm -hmm. not the case. It's like typically indirectly, right, that, that, that these effects are, are created. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, and um... I think you know part of the part of the reason for writing the sense hacking book was in sort of an answer to this question, <laughs> given that most of the research has been funded uh, by industry over the last quarter of century, um, and I can sort of point to in my own work you know, examples where if you can add sonic seasoning, if you add sonic sweetness, so you can reduce sugar in food and drink, who wouldn't want that kind of yeah. sensory nudge, um, or, 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 or our work in warning signals, but. You know, by by putting the knowledge in, in everyone's hands and saying this is what you can do for yourself and for your family to improve your social, cognitive, emotional well-being, and here's the evidence that it all works. Um, hopefully then that uh, yeah, sort of redresses the balance a bit um, in terms of this, is this knowledge, are these influences being used for good or for evil, in, in yeah, evil being exactly. sort of a biasing purchase. Um, and, but then it, you know, ultimately maybe it's a bit like uh, this sort of you know, a lot of my students here at Oxford will write their dissertations as they are this year on sort of similar, subliminal advertising. Does it work? Mm -hmm. And that seems sort of unethical. And, and yet some of these sort of sensory marketing things are kind of what I want to call maybe sort of functionally subliminal. Sort of when they're pointed out to you, you can sort of see what's going on, but you just never really think about it. Um, so in a way, they're, they're a little bit different because probably the cues are there for you to perceive. Mm -hmm. Sort of passing things into your brain that you're realising. Um, but we just need to be better educated, I suppose, about uh, the impact and uh, they may have and think, you know, for, for good, um, how, how, how can we better uh, capitalise on sense hacking for, you know, for, for, for well-being, for nudging people towards better behaviours individually for the planet? And I think there's also like a like a very like noble element in kind of like studying these topics, which is uh, you put them in the public side, you know, and this creates also a discussion of where do we want to erect this, right? Like this is a thing, right? As, as you said, like maybe 15 years ago, not many people believe it, but now we're talking about what are the implications and the fact that we understand this better means that we can talk better and in a more informed manner about in which context we want to use it, how do we want to use it and for what purpose. Mm -hmm. Okay, Charles, no, this, is, this was a fantastic uh, uh, conversation. Thank you so much for, for your time. Um, uh, I hope that you keep uh, uh, polishing uh, your amazing research. <laughs> there's, there's the next one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you so much again. And uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch. Great. Okay. All right. Great. Thank you. Thanks.